0: Welcome to UnUninformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Each week, UnUninformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel dumb around your smart friends. We're talking about Fairkind, a business which empowers artisans in developing countries who make indigenous handcraft, which is sold to customers in the US. We're talking to co founders Melissa Seavey and Lyndon Baker. Before they started this venture, all their efforts were in a nonprofit called Musana Jewelry. But then they scaled up and started Fairkind, which is a for profit. We're talking about the pros and cons of nonprofit versus for profit. Melissa Seavey and Lyndon Baker, welcome to Uninformed.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks.
0: To know a little bit about Fairkind, we need to know about Musana. Just a year and a half ago, Fairkind didn't even exist. You were both working for Musana. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Musana Jewelry. So
2: Musana started in 2009. Um, We were in Uganda, living in a community there for a few months, uh, doing a variety of community building projects, and got to know several of the women in the community and started to see this common situation where women have the economic burden for the home, and yet there's very little work for women in their community. And so seeing that situation, we thought quite naively, <laughs> given we, we were, you know, college students, freshly graduated, um, and just thought, let's start something. And um, we, we'd we seen beautiful jewelry in the area. And so we rounded up um, a group of women that we knew that we had personal connection to in the beginning um, that were in dire situations and and started an organization called Musana. So it a, it's a nonprofit uh, where women are employed in making jewelry that's sold here in the U.S. And then that um, the profits return to provide stable income. And we also do, as part of our program, classes in literacy, business, and health to be able to, um, in a holistic way, uh, provide
0: a pathway out of poverty. So then where did Fairkind come in?
1: So after doing Musana for a few years, we had been trying to sell Musana as a brand j- directly to customers. So it was a right. you know a social brand, and, and we were doing that for a while. And as we were doing this, we kept having businesses approach us wanting to partner with Musana. And so they were wanting to do either wholesale orders or do some kind of social give back campaign. And after doing a few of these, we realized that, you know, this is a niche that we need to tap into, and there's this need. Businesses want to be doing these kinds of partnerships and these kinds of projects. They want to be buying these types of products that that give back and that have more of a meaning and more of a story. And so we thought, you know, we need to run with this. We need to expand this. And and that's kind of what led to Fair Kind.
2: Additionally, we intimately came to know the plight of artisans, and we know very personally each of the our artisans in uganda yeah. um we spent n- both of us together have spent months and months um several in years. the community yeah over the last several years um spent face to face time been in the homes of our artisans and so we've we've intimately come to know that situation and then seen that the plight of artisans across the developing world is similar that um a high level of indigenous craft skill beautiful products, um, but very often they don't have market access. Uh, So, you know, very often... So, yeah,
0: clear up what market access actually means. What what does that mean? Yeah,
2: so maybe if, you know, who are they selling to in their own country? Uh, If it's tourist season, they might sell several, and then there's a season where tourists are not there. Um, Just inconsistent work like that. Uh, It's also a very exploited group. You know, artists, very, very typically, say you go to a... Uh, to a developing country and you're in in a flea market and you're like wow look at this hand-woven bag it's only seven bucks this is great well usually you're buying it from a middleman who paid pennies to the person that actually made it and so um, those that are actually making the craft very often are taken advantage of by middlemen or by exporters and so knowing that situation and also knowing that people in the US are seeking for fair trade products um, that are ethical. We thought we we see, see our role as bridging these two.
0: Okay. Now, now just kind of give me an idea of some of the products you got. I know Musana, it was jewelry, the African style of jewelry. Um, now with Fairkind, what kind of products you got? Yes,
1: yeah, so we have artisan groups now that we're working with in a few different countries. And all of our products are... You know, like Mel was saying, they're products that these um, people in these countries are already making. They're indigenous. They're um, they're traditional and their culture and everything. And then we kind of come in and tweak them. So you know, tweak them for a Western aesthetic. Okay. Yeah. So we have in Uganda we have jewelry, and it's all made from locally sourced materials. Yeah. In Rwanda we have woven baskets. Basket is a very traditional thing that all the women do there and so we have woven baskets from rwanda in morocco we have ceramics we also have some wood and other products we have leather coming out of guatemala we have uh, embroidery coming from uzbekistan so really just whatever products are traditional to the culture are what we're what we're bringing to our customers
0: and fortunately those kind of things are pretty hip in the u.s right yeah
1: luckily i mean
0: people like my tie from India, I get so many compliments mm-hmm. from, and uh, and I, I can see the appeal to that. Now, tell me about the the value of doing, you know, business to business is what Fairkinds doing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to business to customer.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so. This has been a huge pivot for us. Just like Linden was describing originally with Musana, we were becoming a fashion brand. We got on the Today Show, on their Gifts That Give Back segment, yeah. um, and so we were doing all the fulfillment and and just trying to carve out a place for ourselves in the ethical fashion industry, which is somewhat saturated. There's a lot of groups oh, really? that are, you know, working to empower groups and selling it to individual customers. Okay, yeah. Well, uh, kind of like what she described in our journey, seeing that there's this... So we kind of moved from being in the ethical fashion sector. We're kind of doing the same uh, work that we were doing before, but we've moved to a new sector of business in corporate gifting. Yeah. And so we were pretty unique in that space that we're offering handmade goods. And and so in corporate gifting, you know, businesses are looking for, oh, what's a what's a, a cool thing that we can give for Christmas that our, our customers, our partners or employees will love and and will remember us by um, with, and, and, you know, we've heard this pain over and over again from businesses saying like, Oh, I'm so stressed about what am I going to give next, next Christmas? Yeah. I'm just, I've run out of ideas. Um, And so this is something that comes with an inherent story and gives the company. So it's, it's a budget that they already have. They're already purchasing gifts and um, rather than needing to donate, they are paying for products that have a social good story. And in, in kind of our philosophy, is that the best thing that we can do for people in poverty is provide fair and consistent work. And so that's what we're doing um, through this method. And so um, by working with businesses, they, they will place larger orders yeah. uh, anywhere from 50 up to tens of thousands.
0: Oh, well, that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, and so, and it's, and it's exciting because as we've moved to this new model, we've been able to very rapidly see um, our ability to scale our impact.
0: I had a friend last year message me and said, Oh, this is so sad that Musana has shut down their online store. But that's not sad.
1: No, it's not sad. It's for the best. And you know these these bigger orders that Mel's talking about. It's actually better for the artisans too, because it means instead of having to make small quantities of a bunch of different you know designs and products and everything, they can focus on whatever the order is for. And so a lot of the times it means that they're they're producing a single or a few products over and over and over again. And so they're yeah. able to produce more, more quickly, right. you know, better quality and all of that stuff. And so they're able to to be more efficient to make more money ultimately.
0: Well, I, I just imagine you guys like packing one box with one necklace where now it's one box with hundreds of necklaces, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so it makes a lot more sense. Oh, we
2: are so happy about not having to deal with individual customers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could
0: see there's a lot of... Uh, history there of, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're glad now now Musana's not shut down though uh, nope, how about you not, clarify that because a lot of people have been confused about that mm-hmm. Musana is still there but the online store is not yeah, there Musana
1: is still up and running so Musana is still fulfilling orders for these B2B clients that we're talking about Okay, so Musana we're still selling Musana jewelry to our corporate clients and they're still ordering you know better orders in our, in our opinion these larger orders of specific products that they're using for corporate gifting or for different give back Campaigns and things like that,
2: and in fact, it's not just like is Musana still surviving? is doing better. Yeah. With this new model. Oh, okay. Uh, we're scaling. We we've just bought land in Uganda. Oh, fantastic. Uh, we're we're building a workshop, a child development center, a library. So um, Musana is still is separate uh, as a nonprofit, but we sell Musana products through Fair Kind. Mm-hmm. And so, but as far as like what we're able to do with the community, Musana is just fully functioning as a nonprofit. We have some really generous donor donors that are um, assisting us in, in huge ways financially to be able to to do all of our community building. Um, and then products wise, we're getting more large, consistent orders for our.
1: So essentially, now Musana is one of the many artisan groups that we're sourcing from. Got and it. I was fair kind.
0: So you're in the nonprofit sector, you're in the for-profit, um, mm-hmm. uh, with, with these two businesses. Uh, let's talk about pros and cons of nonprofit businesses and for-profit models.
2: Mm-hmm. So nonprofit, and, and this is, you know, for the listeners out there, people ask us often, uh, you know, students or those that are wanting to start something, come to us and say, Hey, can you give me some advice? Um, if your main funding source is going to be donors, then you'll need to be a nonprofit. Okay, that makes sense. The biggest um, benefit that comes from being a nonprofit, and there's a whole process you go through with the IRS um, to get your 501c3 designation. Yeah. So that's an application process. It took us a couple of years. It's a oh, difficult really? process, yeah.
0: Oh, so th- that mean people didn't get tax breaks within the first few years for buying your stuff? Yeah,
2: the first couple of years. Uh, well, you don't get tax breaks when you buy something, you get tax breaks when you donate something. Got it. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so that's the thing. If you're starting a social business that you're selling product and your main revenue is going to, or funding model is going to be selling the product, there's not really a, a real reason that you need to be a nonprofit, even if it's social good. It's only if you're going after donors. And to be honest, that sector is getting more, more and more difficult to secure funding through donors. Really? Yeah.
1: Because there are so many social businesses now. Like what we're doing, companies don't feel like they need to just give out large donations, give a large check away to a nonprofit to do good. And so yeah. you know, they can buy actual products and get something tangible back for the money they're spending to do good.
2: And additionally, I think there's like a, a growing... Uh, skepticism of nonprofits, like, is this really the best way? Is this the best model? Um, and in some cases, it still is. Like, there's all, there always will be a place for nonprofits. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of this emerging field of fusion nonprofit for profit or or fully for profit that has a social cause.
0: So, therefore, do you agree with the statement? If you want something to be successful, treat it like a business.
1: To some extent yeah definitely. and yeah. I mean in our
2: model, mm-hmm. absolutely. yeah again, there's some exceptions, but as much as and actually I would say almost every nonprofit these days, because securing funding is getting more difficult um, is looking for a variety of ways of a, a variety of income streams and looking for um, income generating an income generating part of their nonprofit. Whether that's like charging fees for their services when they used to be free, um, you know, or a, a sliding scale, say it's a, I don't know, a library, a literacy program, I don't know, that maybe for low income people would be free, but then people that do have income that want to use their services, they pay. So they're lo- so more and more, I think almost everybody in the nonprofit sector is in some way doing some uh, business model type portion yeah. or income generated portion.
1: And that was definitely what we were doing with Musana. Mm -hmm. You know, we were selling jewelry as our main revenue channel. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of expanded on that with Fairkind.
0: Got it. So it's kind of sounding like this, you just told me the benefits of nonprofit. So for everything else besides the donor thing, for-profit's the answer?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit, it's actually quite a bit easier to do many, to run many aspects of a business when you're a for-profit. So like you were saying, you know, running things as a business, a lot of nonprofits are doing that and we were doing that, but we would come into situations where it would just have been easier had we been a for-profit, right? So, and as a for-profit company, it's it's more accepted and it's, you know, for-profit companies are able to invest a lot more in their marketing and their sales and all these different things. Um, and with nonprofits, yes, you can have an overhead and, and you can have costs and things that are included in that, but it's lo- kind of looked down upon to spend, you know, a large chunk of the pie on, on marketing or on anything else other than the cause, right? People want to know that the majority of the money is going towards the cause, yeah. which is great, but at the same time... When, when you take some of that money and are able to invest it in marketing and sales and, and management and all these different things, it means that you're able to grow that pie to so much bigger, which means you're able to do so much more good. And so ultimately, more people are affected. There's a greater impact in all of these things. And so that's why we felt like we need to be a business so that we can grow it to a point where our impact is so much greater. And and
2: that we've seen that happen mm-hmm. just in the past year and a half
0: because the artisans have done better under this for-profit model.
2: And additionally, we've been able to employ
0: oh over over
1: a, two thousand women in Rwanda. Really? So okay, give me a
0: perspective. Re- of what what you had before. You, uh, so Musana, yeah, 20
2: full-time people? artisans and about 40 part-time artisans when we had big orders coming in. Okay. Um, yeah, like she said, just one order in Rwanda. We had 1,500 to 2,000 women working on the order. Oh wow! Yeah, we
1: were employing a big chunk of women in the that's country. Like, it's uh, pretty amazing.
0: That's like a whole village, you know. <laughs>
2: it was
1: any villages actually.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we went to all. Rwanda
1: is a small country. So yeah. it we went to most of the country.
2: Motorcycles yeah. out to very places mm-hmm. to
1: get to some you of our. You were
0: hunting friends. for these artisans.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now wasn't
0: another advantage that uh, with Musana you were training these women mm-hmm. um, with Fairkind. You just found people who already had the skills, is yeah. that right?
1: Yeah, so now we're connecting with groups who are already producing products, right? Okay. So they already have the skills, they're, you know, they're already making really fine, high-quality products. We're just going in and you know, sometimes changing the designs a little bit to, yeah. to make it appeal more to the Western audience. And then, and then helping them get to a point where they can really mass-produce and create the quantities and, and, and you know, on the timelines and everything that we're looking at.
0: So, I've met a lot of people that are maybe college students doing like public health and things like that, and I'm like, "Hey, so what do you what do you want to do with your career?" they say, "I want to work for a nonprofit."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you guys tell them? Oh,
1: good luck. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you want to have three side jobs like we did for right. years. Mm-hmm. Literally. Yeah. Both of us were working, we just had mm-hmm. more than one side hustle mm-hmm. to be able to put food on the table yeah. for ourselves. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so you two have traveled the world quite a bit and most people are doing that for like tourism. Great. But you guys have been doing impact in these developing communities all over the world. So tell me some stories about that. I want to hear some travel stories.
1: So let's see, last summer we got to spend quite a bit of time in Rwanda and we were there working on this quite a large order for a big client here. And we were producing these small woven ornament baskets. And yeah. in order to meet the timeline that we needed for this client, we needed to have about 1,500 to 2,000 women employed. And wow. so this was a huge project that we, were, that we were getting ourselves into. And so in Rwanda, they have small cooperatives. So they have this cooperative kind of setup where women will come together and they'll, they'll work in this cooperative. Um, and so we were able to tap into kind of these established cooperatives. And so we were working with a bunch of different groups when we were to complete this order and everything. Um, but what was really cool is that we had a few groups who we were put in touch with, and they were groups that no- normally companies aren't, aren't working with them because they're just so far away. So they're not easy to access. So some of the groups were in Kigali or, or were in you know bigger towns and cities. And, and so we were able to come to these, some of these further out groups. And there was this one group specifically that... I mean, they, their little village was just tiny, and it was up on the top of this mountain. Really? So, literally, I mean, we took motorcycle, we took motos, so these mo- motorcycle taxis up to get to their village. On dirt roads, I'm sure. I mean, roads, like roads is, yeah. Roads <laughs> uh, we <were laughs> like... is, like, a bit of an overstatement. I don't know if you could call that. They're, like, sort of beaten down paths, <laughs> okay. but barely that in some places. And, I mean, wow. we literally were, like, on the edge of a cliff. If we had <laughs> leaned hard at any <laughs> given, given point, we in. could yeah. have Gone off the edge. Wow. So and I mean it was like a two-hour moto ride to get up to this. And it wore a dress village. that day. It was the worst. <laughs> wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. So you had to straddle the, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. motorcycle? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Keep it was. Going. It was way too <laughs> rocky
1: to side saddle it. it was, <laughs> like, that was not going to work that day. You got getting a great vigil right now. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we get up there, and it's this beautiful village. It's like on top of a mountain, so it's so green, and there's just hardly any houses, so it's, it was really beautiful. But there's this group of artisans, and they knew we were coming, so they had all gathered, and they were oh, sitting cool. out weaving, and they were so excited to meet us. And um, when we started talking to them about you know this order we were doing and everything, they were so excited and just thrilled, and they were telling us that You know they don't have companies ever coming and approaching them with large orders because they just no one ever ventures out this way
0: they're not on the hub no so and i
1: mean that is a perfect example of not having market access right so they just no one no one sees them they have no opportunity to share their products with people who might be interested in buying them right and it was interesting because as we were coming in you know we came in with the spec sheet and you know all these details of what we wanted and And we're working, you know, directly with the artisans and explaining, you know, what we could take, what we couldn't, and all the details. And, And when we started talking about price, they, you know, we had before, we had figured out, okay, how much does it cost for a woman to, you know, how much the cost of living how much is rent how much is it to pay for food how much is it to pay for all the things you would need to provide for your children to send them to school to do all those things and so we had an idea of and it takes about two days to make our product right so we'd figured out okay we want to pay this amount to our artisans for each basket to make sure that they're it's worth their time yeah. and so when we started negotiating on price with this group They came in so much lower. They came in like a few hundred francs, Rwandan francs lower than, than what we had plan to pay them
0: that's a really good position to be in from right business For, yeah, yeah
1: but i mean that's not what we're there to do you know we're yeah. there to make sure that these people are paid a fair wage and that they're able to send their kids to school that they're able to really grow from this and that this is a, a project that is worth investing their time in and so when we came back we're like well actually we're gonna pay you 400 francs more than that <laughs> you know they just are cheering and clapping and then they're praying. probably like i mean they can't they're probably like these you women Americans are crazy so
0: <laughs> i know yeah, yeah. like so much is like, you know, mm-hmm. w- we'll do it for minimum wage. No, I'll I'll pay you. Uh, we'll you pay know. you
1: a third more of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. So awesome. yeah, I mean,
1: they were shocked, but I think I think that was you know that was probably good for them to see that um, this is you know their value and they should be charging that right. Yeah. They need to charge what makes it worthwhile for them to do. And so that was a really cool experience. Mm-hmm. And we actually had the same thing happen with a few different groups. Really, where they offered us a price much lower than we had already decided was a fair price for this product. Wow. And so and so we bartered up. Yeah, we negotiated. Yeah, so you guys price. are horrible negotiators from <laughs> yeah, the traditional we, we standpoint. We are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah,
2: that's our, you know, that, that's our mission. And so that is something that we stick to. Right. So this is what this whole realm of social business is. is not just focusing on our bottom line, yeah. but it's a triple bottom line of not just profit, profit, people, and planet. Okay. You're looking at more factors than just, are we making money?
0: The human factor.
1: So that's one way that we don't, we're not thinking like a business. We're not running like a business because we're not just doing, you know, what we make the most money from. We want to do what makes it good for the artisans and what ultimately creates the most impact.
0: And and I'm aware that there are plenty of businesses out there that are screwing over people in developing countries. I mean, that's what the whole sweatshop uh, Mm -hmm. uh, stereotype came from.
2: And to round out that story of, how that was then communicated here on the US side oh, yeah. for our client. These baskets have a lot of cultural meaning in Rwanda. So you know, they've been they've been making baskets for generations and, and, and even within sub Saharan Africa, Rwanda is known as having the the finest, most beautiful baskets. Yeah. So yes, these are these are very traditional but um the genocide of nineteen ninety four where a million people were slaughtered in a hundred days. And and it was so interesting as we were there interacting with people, we realized anybody that's in their mid twenties and above remembers that and lived the atrocities. They weren't long ago. Yeah. It was on their streets. It was in their homes. Yeah. And, um, so after the genocide, women from the two tribes, um, Hutu and Tutsi, which those words are not used in Rwanda at all. Oh. You don't uh, say those a lot. You don't. Yeah, is are, it like a Rwandans. racial slur now or yeah, something? It's uh, at, well, just more of like... It would be. Yeah, like that's not... But we don't not talk about that. In. We, we are one Rwanda. We're oh, Rwandan.
1: Okay. So mm-hmm. now everyone is Rwandan. Wow. Yeah.
2: And so the women from, from these two groups came together yeah. post-genocide and would sit in weaving groups and weave baskets together. And, and this would be a time of of remembering what happened and talking about, you know, what had led up to that and how they can make amends for peace uh-huh. and, and to prevent this from happening again. And so the baskets are known as peace baskets and they're actually a national symbol that's on their dollar. Really? It's that, on their, that's on their, on like, their physical on their,
1: currency. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And so it's very meaningful. So the client that bought these, these the, the company that bought these baskets told this story for Christmas as give the gift of peace. Wow! And this is what these baskets mean. Mm-hmm. So that's
1: the, that's what we give to our clients. Yeah. our products have so much more of a story than you know something you would just order from China, right? And yeah, it's, that's
0: so cool. Yeah, um, and it's cool. Um, I want you, one, I, mm-hmm. and I don't even do baskets. Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> and they'll come. They'll even come signed by the specific woman who made it. So there's really such really? such a great connection to the actual product that people are receiving as a gift.
0: Instead of just like this material, right. um, you paid for this material, you paid for a story. Right. And that's, that's, I think, what uh, consumers want.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so you both are running a startup, which has plenty of hard battles, uphill battles. Anybody who has a startup knows that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work for the government. I enjoy a steady paycheck <laughs> and job security. <laughs> to, on top of that, you're running a social venture. So both these together are like uphill battles. So why do you keep doing it? What, what keeps you going?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the experiences we have in country when we're able to meet these women and, you know, f- hear them tell their stories of what happened to them in the genocide and losing their family and how this work that they're provided is, is making, is allowing them to change their lives and allowing them to create a brighter future for their families. Those experiences really keep us going, and they give us the energy to to keep going and to fight those uphill battles because we know that we're doing this for a really good reason Mm -hmm. and that we're having an impact in the lives of these people who we've met and who are just incredible.
2: It's been really interesting for us to be able to really firsthand experience what kind of um, empowerment looks like. Uh, Some of the artisans that started with us in 2009 – For example, there was one artisan that was very shy, that didn't speak any English, uh, and though we knew her, couldn't interact a ton because we didn't speak the same language, um, and was just pretty destitute. This woman named Eve, she now is the class clown of... Are Ugandan artisans really? She's, she's witty and and sarcastic, <laughs> which is like she's like the most sarcastic person I know in that country. Yeah, uh, is that, I mean is that <laughs> sarcasm is I, not a thing? That's my she, is, yeah. like, she is always like making fun of people and like yeah. during you know group meetings where I was like Eve, calm down. But she's yeah. she's the one when you walk into our workshop. She will be the first to jump on her feet and start singing, We are happy to receive you. Welcome. Mm-hmm. She'll get
1: everyone dancing. Yeah, she's, she's awesome.
2: Yeah. They call her the Malala, which is the crazy one. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> That's but great. seeing what poverty looked like and, and what how poverty had dampened her ability to um, let her personality shine, to be creative, yeah. to, to create something for her family. And now seeing where she's at, she's confident. Her kids are all in school. She knows that they are going to have a whole different life than she did because of these opportunities. And now
1: she's one of our best English speakers. And yeah, we really. can have really elaborate conversations with her.
2: So, so yeah, we've seen um, beautiful changes uh, in, in that way. And so, yeah, that, that keeps us going. And, and actually, I would say, in some ways, doing a social business, there are a lot of people that are, are excited for what we're doing. Yeah. And so maybe things that... Are, are not as uphill as, as they may seem. We do have a lot of supporters or people that are like, you go, this is great. This is great to be thinking in this new way and, and uh, people want to get involved and, and collaborate with us. And, and so it's been, it's a really exciting time to be in this realm that people are more aware. Um, you know, the up and coming generations are much more socially conscious. Yeah. And so we we have, a, uh, there's a growing appetite for this type of product and, and service that we can offer
1: Yeah, and I know we've discussed this before, but I think for us personally, it might be an uphill battle, but we feel like there's so much purpose in everything we do that it makes it worth it, and it makes it easy.
0: Melissa Seavey and Lyndon Baker, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks Thanks for having us. us.
0: That was Melissa Seavey and Lyndon Baker, who co-founded Fairkind. For more info on Fairkind, visit fairkind.com. If you like the show, prove it. Leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show. Our theme music is provided by Dede Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Un-Uninformed. Thanks, everybody.